Friends, I invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. Um, if you're looking for Proverbs, go about to the middle, you'll find Psalms. Proverbs comes right after the book of Psalms. And 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, along with some other letters. So after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and Romans, and then 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. As we continue our um, series on generosity, we're partnering this week um, this Old Testament and New Testament text. And there are ways in which these two passages in Scripture speak to each other. They have some familiar, similar and familiar language, and they have a similar philosophy underneath them. And so we'll read first from Proverbs 11, then from 2 Corinthians 9. So if you want to kind of hold 2 Corinthians with the thumb or a piece of your bulletin, and we'll start with Proverbs 11. Before we read God's word, it is one of our beliefs that we ask the Holy Spirit to open the word to us. I think there's sometimes where you can sit down and you open your Bible and it just blows your mind. And those are holy and sacred moments where God's Holy Spirit is speaking through the word. And I think there's other times where we might open and we're, we're maybe for devotions in a habit, we're, we're making good rhythms, but, but it's just words on the page and we're reading the words, but they're staying somewhere up here and they're not sinking all the way in. The difference is asking for the Holy Spirit's blessing to open the scriptures to our hearts, to open them to us and for us to be open to them. So with this in mind, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Speak to us deep into our hearts. Open us to your word and open your word to us that we may find you. And Lord, as you open the word to us, help us to understand better who you are. Give us a, a clear picture of your love and your grace and your generosity. Give us a better understanding of who you are, Jesus, that we may see you more clearly, O oh God. This we ask as a, a big ask and yet we ask it knowing that you are generous and that you long to reveal yourself to us. So as we study Proverbs and 2 Corinthians today, be generous in opening yourself up to us that we may know you better and in knowing you better, follow you more faithfully. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. And now turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. To the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we hear passages like Proverbs 11 and 2 Corinthians 9, there's maybe one just quick word of caution, um, a, a, a gate that we should put around them, that especially just in our context, in this current historical moment, matters to us. And it's a very obvious statement, but we'll unpack it a little bit. The obvious statement that we should hold on to when we read passages that talk about people who give money and they're generous and then they receive even more. The simple statement is this, God is not a formula. Simple enough, right? We know this, right? God is not a formula. And here's why we say this. There is a, a way in which some people read the scriptures called, and maybe they won't admit that this is what they would call it, but it's the, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, which essentially tells us if you give generously, God will make you rich. If you do all the right things, your life will turn out really, really well. This is the essence of the prosperity gospel. And there's texts that you can use to try to support this and build it up. But, but where we come to the Bible today is to remember first and foremost that God is not a formula. Meaning that when we might read Proverbs 11 and think, well, one person gives freely yet gains even more. Well, if I try that, then I'll gain even more, right? But God's not a formula. The divine is not a cosmic calculator in heaven that sees, well, they tithe 10% of their income, so I'm going to make them a millionaire. Or they gave generously, so I'm going to make them rich. God is not manipulated by our actions. That somehow there's this static input and formula output of what we do and then what God will have to do. God's not a formula. We already know from following Jesus, especially as Christians, that God came to us as a person that in a few weeks we'll start celebrating the season of Advent, that we recognize that Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us. God showed up, not as an invisible essence or power, but God showed up with flesh and blood and bone. God showed up as a person, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And so God is not a formula. Rather, God is a person, specifically three persons in one divine essence that we call the Trinity. But I think that might be a better uh, discussion to unpack in Drift or somewhere afterwards because we just won't get through everything that we know about the Holy Trinity and how that works. But we do know Jesus. 
we can read the stories of when Jesus dwelt on the earth, when he was here among us, that, that God became a person like us and walked among us. I think that matters so much. We remember that God's not a formula but a person is because you can imagine what a person looks like in your head. Just for fun, let's, let's close our eyes. Close your eyes, and since we use them in announcements, can you imagine what Rachel Demblaker looks like? If you know who that is, it's not that hard. You can open your eyes now. Or if we played it again, you could imagine perhaps um, someone who you love who has died. You can close your eyes and imagine what they look like. You can see them at a certain moment in time. Our memories are such that we can remember what people look like. When we remember that Jesus walked this earth, I wonder if it helps us to pay attention to what details of Jesus as a person do we fill in, especially when we're talking about generosity and gratitude and giving and tithing. I wonder what picture of Jesus comes up for you. What do you imagine? And, I, and I, I wonder especially if you paid attention to Jesus' body language when we talk about giving and tithing, or if we paid attention to the facial expressions that Jesus would use. In simple terms, here's what I mean. When we talk about generosity and giving, does it fill you with some like shame or disappointment or, or maybe the sense that you're not doing enough? Is your picture of Jesus something like arms crossed, tapping foot, when you think about giving and giving generously, do you have a picture of Jesus peering over your shoulder saying, I don't know if you're writing that check for enough, are you? Or do you see Jesus kind of standing off on the distance, watching you fill in your calendar, and Jesus perhaps going, that's not a very generous use of your time. You're not living up to the prayer that Terry Packard offered. I wonder if that's a picture of Jesus that gets conflated with giving and money. That if we have maybe had some experiences with authority being generally disappointed in us and that we transfer that onto God and then when we do something so tangible as talk about generosity and giving, if that gets all mixed up in there, that the picture of God that we have is judging and disappointed. And I think when we talk about giving and when we understand who God is, these things get tied together really quickly. And so it's a very important spot to pay attention to who we believe God to be. Do you worship a God that you think is always about this close from being disappointed in you? If so, I'm sorry for the experiences that have probably shaped that picture of God, or, or maybe the conversations around giving that have kind of made us feel this tied-up-in-knots stomach version of God who's just always looking for something to be disappointed in. Because I don't think that's accurate to who God is. And I don't think it's the picture of Jesus that we receive in the Scriptures. For one, we're told in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. And if God loves a cheerful giver, a, a delighted heart, is it so hard to imagine that there are times when we give of ourselves in any of the different ways that we can give that Jesus would smile? Do you think when God watches your life, there are moments where God watches you and says, hey, good job. 
Does God have delight? If, if God loves a cheerful giver, and there are times where we give of ourselves cheerfully, whether our time or our talent, our treasure, our money, our, our gifts being used, is it so hard to imagine that we worship a version of God that would take delight in what we are doing? That God is not just always on the threshold of being disappointed, but that often Jesus rejoices with us and alongside of us. That Jesus, when walking with his disciples, might have smiled from time to time or laughed alongside of them and with them. There's two pictures of God that we can tie into this. And we might get stuck in some of the wrong spots if we only pay attention to the wrong cues. I believe that we worship a God who smiles and takes delight. That, that God really does love a cheerful giver. And I think of acts of service and giving that are done, that, that, that Jesus, if he were standing alongside of you, would be maybe whispering in your ear, well done. That there are times that you give of your time and use your gifts, that Jesus might whisper to our hearts, that's going to make a bigger difference than you think. You're making an impact. And you might not see it right now, but I need you to trust me that you are. I wonder if there's also that delight. Now, we are reformed. This is a reformed church, which comes with it a certain amount of emotional stoicism, right? Okay, I mean, if some of our some of our senior saints, our elderly folks, are smiling because you know exactly what I mean. There's not a, a lightheartedness, or a, even I would say a playfulness that we sometimes accompany when we understand who God is. I struggle with that because I'm just generally a goofy person. <laughs> and there are times to be really, really serious and also times to remember that God is playful even with what we give. So when we think about this God who takes delight, who talks about generosity, that when we give generously and freely, we gain even more or that generous people will prosper, maybe not in an input X, output Y kind of formula, but that there might be different ways in which God imagines our prospering, ways in which God has delight in what we give and what we do. And that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. But what is it that we are ultimately reaping? Scripture never says that if you give, God will make you rich. That was never the point. But rather, we worship a God who is generous and playful, and the output of giving is that we connect better with God's heart, for God is generous. And so what are the outputs that we see and find, even in 2 Corinthians 9, just in these few short verses? We're told in verse 8 that we will abound in, not flush with cash necessarily, but that we will abound in every good work. Going a little bit further down to verse 10, that God will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness and that you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving. We get good works and righteousness and thanksgiving. And, and none of these things save us by ourselves. It is only Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that saves us, his blood of which we partake at the table, his body broken for us. That's the only thing that saves us. But we talk about good works and righteousness and thankfulness. These put us in touch with who God is in God's heart. 
and that good works abound when we are faithful. Our gratitude and thankfulness to God comes forth and our righteousness, not that we earn our way into heaven through righteousness, but that righteousness comes naturally when our heart is in the right place. And God loves this cheerful giver who gives not reluctantly or under compulsion. I wonder which one you might find to be more of a sticking point, reluctance or compulsion. And this, I think, is where we maybe get some bad ideas about the obligations of generosity that that we conflate and it gives us a picture of God that's really disappointed. And I don't think that's the version of God that we find when we practice generosity, when we exercise that muscle of giving and generosity. Giving, first of all, under compulsion, meaning that you have in some way been shamed or maneuvered into being made to give. If we give under compulsion, we might give a lot of our stuff. We might give of our time. We might give of our money. But if we give under compulsion, there will be no joy found in it. We'll do it out of obligation. We'll do it because authority told us that we have to. And we might give really faithfully and regularly, but we will not experience the joy of giving if we give under compulsion. Sometimes, I think we need a little bit of a catalyst to get us going. But it's not, if we give only out of compulsion, if we're compelled to do so, if we're forced to do so, if we've been shamed into giving, we might give, but there will be no joy in it. And we won't experience the generous joy that God experiences and encourages us to also experience. So we can give under compulsion, and that might paint a certain picture of who God is. We could also give, well, reluctantly, where we'll maybe do what we have to, but it's hard, and we're not really looking to grow into any kind of practice. We give out of reluctance, maybe because we feel obligated to, or we feel like we should, maybe a little bit of that shame from, well, you have so much, you might as well give some, but I think actually in today's world that we're uh, we live in a commitment-aversive society. We don't like to, to commit ourselves to things. Reluctance will generally lead to inaction. Reluctance will lead to inaction. If we are hesitant about something, it more than likely will just stay on the back burner until it kind of fades away. I think it might be like if you're at an intersection and there's someone who's panhandling and you're kind of like, okay, I just got to wait this one out. Okay, no, reluctance and inaction. I'm not actually suggesting, I think there's other ways that we address panhandling and other things in our community. Um, but I do think there's that uncomfortability, that like reluctance, like I don't want to look at that person. So I'm just going to kind of like pay attention to my steering wheel really, really well and hope that this moment goes away. And then we pull forward a little bit. And then for the love of all things holy, we're wondering why the car in front of us won't turn right because they can and they should have like 10 minutes ago because we're feeling uncomfortable. This is reluctance. And I wonder if there's opportunities to give that we feel reluctant about. And our reluctance leads to inaction until maybe the opportunity just passes by and we can finally move forward. There's not a lot of joy in compulsion nor is there joy in reluctance. Put differently, if we think about 
tithing, I don't think as the end-all, be-all of generosity, but rather as a practice, a way to practice generosity, a way to, to make a holy habit of sacrificial giving. I wonder, just coming back one last time to these two pictures of God and giving that we might conflate, I wonder if we view giving as a, as a type of prosecutor who we have to prove ourselves to, the prosecutor who's weighing the evidence of what we've given and not given, who's essentially judging and is trying to hold on to it? Do we view giving and tithing and generosity as a prosecutor who's put us on trial for thinking if we're good enough? Or do we view tithing and giving and generosity as a teacher who wants us to discover what we're capable of? or perhaps as a coach that wants us to see us exercise and use our gifts in such a way that we grow in our capacity for that which is good. We've got some coaches in the room. They do push those who they are coaching, whether it be in sports or in music, but they push them to see them come to their fullest and best. Is these conversations over these last few weeks, and we've got a couple more weeks to go, in generosity? Has it just continuously evoked this disappointed version of God, this prosecutor who's assessing you? Or is it an opportunity to be coached by reading the devotionals, by grabbing one of those kindness cards, by finding something creative and generous and thoughtful to do? And is it then a teacher, a teacher who's seeking your best? God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't think God's love is stoic or boring. God's love brings about joy. And then we find out that giving freely and gaining even more, it's not ultimately about what we gain, but it is this gain of God's joy. Sowing generously and reaping generously so that we experience good works and righteousness and thanksgiving to God. So friends, hopefully you're reading the devotional, whether online or getting a hard copy in the back. I would challenge you to wonder, what picture, what picture of a person do these conversations bring up for you? Is it a prosecutor or is it a teacher? Is it crossed arms, narrowed eyes, wagging finger, or is it someone who's full to their heart? Someone who smiles, someone who's excited and glad, someone who's relieved. How do you practice that? How do you picture who God is and invite yourself to try just, what's one thing I could do that's generous? Something that's simple, something that's good. And exercise the muscle of generosity. Saying yes to the right things, and finding some ways to say no so that we can say yes to the right things. God loves a cheerful giver when we give, reluct not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because we've been shamed or not because our hesitations have finally been worn out so that we feel like we have to, but rather what we have chosen in our heart to give. And if we're waiting to be a generous person at the right moment, we probably will not find ourselves rising to the occasion if it's not already been a practice, a habit, a way that we start out small 
and grow into something greater. Friends, God is not a formula. God is a person. And God is a person who laughs, who smiles, who encourages, who occasionally does need to steer us back in the right direction, but ultimately one who loves us with a generous love and who gives out of love and generosity and sacrifice. And one of the ways in which we practice receiving and remembering God's generosity is when we come to the table, to the bread and the cup. And we come to this table in remembrance, communion, and hope. In remembrance, remembering the story of Jesus, who was born into this world, who took on our flesh and blood, who taught and healed and fed, who was betrayed and died and rose again and ascended to heaven. We remember that the salvation story is found upon the cross and in the empty grave. And at this supper, we remember what Jesus taught his disciples, that this is his body and this is his blood, broken for us and shed for us and for our salvation. We come in communion, remembering, as I like to point out, that it's not just those whom we see when we gather, but that we do share this supper, a visible communion, and also we share an invisible communion with our Lord, who promised to never leave us or forsake us, but to be with us always to the very end of the age. So you share communion with Nick and Karen and with the Benders and Eerdmans and Mark and Morins and Masts and Vandenboshes and Browers and balcony people that are hard to see because of the lights, but Westfelds and Rocks and more Browers and Skurs. We share a visible communion, but it's not just how we get along with each other. Our communion is based upon Christ calling us to this table that we commune with our Lord here. And we come in hope. Hope not being a blind optimism or, or I, I hope that this works out really well, which is usually a poor decision-making process. Rather, our hope is found in the living Christ. We come in remembrance, communion, and hope. And just one other piece of the invitation that I want us to consider before Pastor Audrey leads us in the, in the communion prayer. Who was it that was at that original table? This is a table that we remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Do you remember that Judas was at that table too? Judas who betrayed our Lord? Do you remember that Peter was at that table? Peter who was ever so eager and yet often got it wrong, who jumped out of the boat and then fell in the water. Friends, I wonder if uh, you feel good coming here thinking that there are moments where you've been eager and moments where you've messed up. There's room for you and Peter here at this table. Or maybe Philip, who um, when Jesus said, to the, when they were looking at the 5,000, why don't you give them something to eat? And Philip's like, we don't have enough money, there's no way. There's room for Philip at this table. For the times in your life that you have said, there's no way, God, I'm not so sure about this. There's room for Thomas, who doubted until he could see for himself to be sure. There's room at this table for Thomas and for you, with your doubts, with your uncertainties. There's room for Andrew, who was like, well, we're going to feed 5,000 people. I just stole some kid's lunch. He didn't steal his lunch. He gave it to him. There's room for people who make jokes. But there's room for Andrew, who said, you know what, this is what I have, but I don't think it's enough to make a difference. There is room for Matthew, who 
cheated and lied to people, and yet was still invited by Jesus, come, follow me. There's room for all them. There's room for us in our eagerness, in our confidence, in the times when we practice being generous and we feel like Jesus has celebrated with us, and in the times where we've held back or been reluctant or when we've felt that bristle of shame from compulsion, there is room at this table for you, with them, with all the communion of saints throughout all time. Come with that generous invitation, friends.